Investor Group Services, or IGS, is a boutique consultancy focused on the world of private equity. Specifically, the firm advises private equity and investor clients on transaction and growth initiatives via M&A due diligence, sell-side industry analysis, strategic support, and more. IGS is actively looking to add talented individuals to its 60-person team. Apply today through the firm's careers page at igsboston.com or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. Hi, my name's Edward, and I'm going to be pursuing a career in consulting upon graduation. As an intern for Management Consulted, I would love it if you were able to fill out a quick survey linked in the show note description. This is going to help Strategy Simplified improve and become far more tailored to you, the individual, looking for a career in consulting. Thank you. Welcome to this special episode of Strategy Simplified. Naman here, Chief Operating Officer at Management Consulted. I'm recording this at around 8.30 in the evening Eastern Time on Monday, March 13th. The reason I mention that? Because the facts on the ground are rapidly changing and evolving around our topic today, which is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And unless you've been living under a rock, I'm sure you've already heard a lot about the collapse SVB. Today, I'm going to take a look at Silicon Valley Bank through four distinct questions. First, who was Silicon Valley Bank? Second, what happened and why did it fail? Third, what does this mean for the U.S. and global financial system? Fourth, and finally, what does this mean for you and I? Let's dive in by answering the first question. Who was Silicon Valley Bank? In short, SVB was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., and its failure last week was the second largest failure in U.S. history after Washington Mutual at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. SVB differentiated itself by collecting deposits from businesses financed through venture capital. It then expanded into banking and financing venture capitalists, which allowed the bank to build an ecosystem of services and maintain long-term client relationships well beyond the client's startup phase. The bank's customers were primarily VC firms and their portfolio companies. But overall, SVB served businesses and individuals in the technology, life sciences, healthcare, PE, and wine industries. At the end of 2022, 56% of the bank's loan portfolio was made up of loans to VC and PE firms which were secured by their limited partner commitments and used to then make investments in private companies. 24% of the bank's loans were to tech and healthcare companies, and 14% of its loans were mortgages to high-net-worth individuals. Amazingly, and this will show you how critical of a role SVB played in the U.S. startup ecosystem, 9% of all loans, which were to early and growth-stage startup companies, came from Silicon Valley Bank. The bank would then require an exclusive relationship from those borrowing from it, one of the policies that led to its accelerated growth over the decades. Overall, at the end of last year, SVB had around $209 billion in assets and $175 billion in customer deposits. So, what in the heck happened? Not to oversimplify, but the bank made a classic mistake, borrowing short and lending long. 
the bank's primary source of capital was customer deposits. And as we've already mentioned, much of its client base was made up of VC-backed startups. In a rising interest rate environment, as borrowing becomes more difficult, as does raising money, these startups were accelerating cash burn. As this acceleration in withdrawals took place, the bank was forced to sell investments at a loss to cover the withdrawals. But why did it have to sell investments at a loss? Let's take a step back for a minute. SVB had achieved record financial performance during the pandemic, when easy money policies ruled and cash was flowing freely from VCs to startups. What was it to do with its newfound capital? It decided to invest it in U.S. treasuries and mortgage bonds, which are safe, long-term investments that offer steady returns when interest rates are low. Now, it's worth noting that the strategy had paid huge dividends for the bank over the last decade of low interest rates. The bank's deposits went from $49 billion in 2018 to almost $190 billion in 2021. However, and I understand that hindsight is 2020 here, SVB made a critical mistake. One that seems almost unbelievable, as the bank's CEO was a member of the Federal Reserve Board of San Francisco. Before the Fed began to hike interest rates in 2021, SVB purchased huge amounts of bonds and does not seem to have instituted a hedging strategy for rising interest rates. As interest rates rose, the current value of these bonds fell. This isn't a big deal if depositors don't withdraw their money, as the bank is guaranteed the return it expected if it holds the bonds to maturity. However, if depositors start to grow anxious and initiate withdrawals, banks sometimes have to sell those bonds before they mature to cover the exodus in capital. That's exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, which had to sell $21 billion in liquid assets to cover sudden withdrawals. It took a $1.8 billion loss on that sale. As word got out about the staggering loss and that the bank had tried to sell an equity stake to plug the hole, depositor confidence was shaken and a bank run began. By end of day Thursday, depositors had attempted to withdraw a staggering $42 billion. As a result, on Friday, March 10th, U.S. regulators shut down the bank, transferring its assets to the FDIC. Now, what does this mean for the U.S. and global financial system? U.S. regulators have stepped in to ensure that depositors at SVB will be made completely whole, beyond even the $250,000 FDIC insurance cap per account. The stated reasoning for this is to ensure that the contagion doesn't spread throughout the financial system, much like it did in 2008. Now, regardless of whether regulators have made depositors whole, I believe that the fallout from SVB's collapse would have been, and will be, pretty isolated. Why? Banks that are more central to the U.S. and global financial system, like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and others, have much more diversified deposit bases. They are also much better capitalized. As Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC, explains, since the 2008 financial crisis, the largest banks have been required to hold cash equivalents to even the safest forms of government debt. This ensures that these banks have plenty of liquidity. Because of this, I personally don't see the parallels between the Bear Stearns collapse in 2008 and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in 2023. Finally, 
what does this mean to you and I? Even though I just mentioned that I don't think this is going to affect the financial system at the same level as what we saw in 2008, at a high level, all of us will still be affected by the collapse of SVB. First, this will most likely affect the pace and scope of the Fed's continued interest rate rises, which will affect borrowing costs for individuals and businesses. This collapse may also need to new regulations, which not only affect the regulated entities, in this case banks, but also influence the decision-making and incentives of individuals and businesses who interact with those regulated entities. Some have also said that this could destroy a generation of promising startups. To me, that's a little bit hyperbolic. More likely, this will hurt innovation in the short term, as some startups do fold and others place an earlier focus on profitability and cash flow. Still, some startups that could have theoretically transformed our economy and lives may not survive this incident. Longer term, however, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank or another entity, the vacuum that this leaves in the startup ecosystem won't go unfilled for long. What can we learn from this? Diversification is key. Personally, I went back this last weekend for the businesses I'm involved in, as well as my own personal finances, and took a look again at my own capital allocation, making sure that I was well-balanced across institutions and that the businesses I work with were under their FDIC insurance limits in as many accounts as possible. The biggest personal takeaway for me, gone are the days that any business or household can get away with a lack of diversification. If your business or family has all of its eggs in one basket, it's doing so at its own risk. <laughs>